You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. And with me, as always, my co-host, Ricky Squid Vibes. Squid, how are we keeping? Uh, well, I think you can tell by my face that I've been out golfing because I'm getting some sun and wind burn. <laughs> yes, I'm hearing that so from I'm a lot doing, of guys. I'm doing okay, even though uh, we just went into a four-week complete lockdown in the province, and uh, but the golf courses are open, so that's good. That's a good sign. Well, our guest today is somebody you know very well from battles over the years, the Chuck Norris division, and all that kind of stuff, and could probably be defined as the ultimate power forward, along with paying away for the most family, most famous family in hockey, the Sutters, and we've got big old Brian Sutter on with us today. Yeah, it's going to be cool. I mean, uh, I haven't talked to Brian in a long time, and I know he's he's got a ranch out in Alberta, and he's ranching now and everything. But uh, but he he was a great guy to play against. I mean, the battles were un, unparalleled between him and myself, and probably a lot of other right wingers in in the Norris division. And uh, but then he was my roommate when we tried out for Team Canada, the Canada Cup in the '84. So I got to know him a little bit and a uh, great guy, great family, actually. Yeah. I mean, you can just tell, I mean, with the, with the whole group of them, the way they are, and they've all gone back home. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, which we're going to get into with these guys. They all played for basically the same junior teams. <laughs> they all came the same route. Yeah. Like six brothers, they're my nap playing national league. Four of them all end up as coaches and three of them, the same goddamn team. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. I mean, yeah, I mean, just the fact that six brothers made the National Hockey League is, is you know, I mean, you never hear of that at all. And just, uh, they were, and a lot of them, the four, the four first ones were, were pretty darn successful as well. Exactly. Uh, and then the twins, not so much, but uh, they, you know, I think because of their name and everything and how high they were drafted, there was a lot more expected of them than what they could probably give. But uh yeah. But the, the, the first four brothers, I mean, they all had great careers. And, uh, you know, Brent and Dwayne winning Stanley Cups with the Islanders and that sort of thing. And, I mean, it's incredible. It sure is. Anyway, we'll get into all that with Brian in a couple of minutes. But first off, I mean, our old Maple Leafs continue to cruise along, finding ways to win, even when they don't play well, as they did last night against Montreal. I'm recording this a couple of days before, but so you'll get this on Saturday. But the missing agreement, as we're all aware, is more physicality. And it's been never more apparent than earlier in the week when they played Calgary and, uh, you know, that Lucic hit on uh, Brody. I mean, he's been known throughout his career as being basically a reckless, no respect, rock him, sop him type forward. Uh, remember, this is the guy who ran Buffalo goalie, Brian Miller. He hit Master Matthews a couple of weeks ago in a vulnerable position. Uh, you know, not only did he run Brody from one side of the ice to the other, he slew footed him and tripped him all at the same time. And Calgary scored in very much like shades of 2013 in game seven when he did the same thing to Carl Gunnarsson, drove him basically to the top of the red circle through the end boards, face planted them, and really it should have been probably at worst a minor or a double minor, if not a major, but an ejection, which is the pit the league was trying to take out of the game. And they scored. Only this time the Leafs managed to hang on and it seemed to motivate them. They played a little bit better and, and carried the game out and won that game. You could tell by the elation on the bench that they were really basically just almost giving Calgary the finger after, after all of that. But 
the point I'm making of all that in that long dissertation there was they better get prepared because the longer they go in the playoffs, the more they're going to see that type of play, and it's only going to get worse. And Simmons going after Lucic later in the game and low-hitting low him, which was on the verge of being a little bit on the dirty side, but you know what? Let him know you're paying attention. But he can't do it all himself. He needs some help. Well, there's no question about that. And I, I you know, I, I mean, if you look at their team, they're all capable of playing with a little bit more physical in their game. And, you know, because they're not a small team. I mean, they got some big players on the mm-hmm. And, you know, Zach Hyman is probably the most physical guy on the team. And he's not even the biggest guy. Uh, so, I mean, they, but, you know, I think the thing that they're going to have to learn through all this and, and playing against Calgary and what the things that happen and everything is that, you know, this is how you're going to have to play in order to win in the playoffs. And as soon as they figure that out and they're willing to sacrifice and are willing to do that, then this team, the sky's the limit, really, when you think about the talent they have. But if they can add that to their, to their game, I mean, the sky's the limit where this team could go. It absolutely is. And it's just, it's just a shame because, you know, there's just that little bit of that missing ingredient missing just to take it to the next level. They're getting great goaltending. Everybody seems to be picking up their assignments. It's just that little extra added just to push them over the top. And if the right move can be made now, however, if you can't make the right move, don't give anything away to make it happen. That's going to hurt you down the road. But if you can make the right move, by all means, go for it. Yeah, and the Islanders just made a big move That's getting right. Zajac and Palmieri. I mean, that put, you know, they gave up a couple of prospects and first round pick, but that automatically puts them, you know, in the mix for the Stanley Cup, Absolutely. acquiring those two players. Absolutely. And so we're going to be, we're going to get into this for Brian in a couple minutes and get your perspectives on this, both as players and coaches, especially over the next couple of days. The anxiety going through players and everybody as the trade deadline approaches. But in the meantime, I just thought only fitting with Brian on the show today. This day, April 10th, 1968, the St. Louis Blues recorded their first home playoff victory in team history. Larry Keenan scored a 24-10 of overtime for a 3-2 win over the visiting Philadelphia Flyers in Game 3 of the Western (laughs) Division quarterfinals, and it was in Philly. And also on this day, just so people don't forget about this a guy because they keep talking about Alex Ovechkin a lot. Uh, we want to, we're going to bring him up as much as we can. A little guy by the name of Wayne Gretzky set a team playoff record with five points, a goal and four assists. Remember, you can assist is as good as a goal. Remember all that. Uh, Dave Taylor had a hat trick and the Kings won 12 4 in a tight one over the visiting Calgary <laughs> Flames and, it, and the semi and the uh, semifinal of the Smite Division in game four. So there you go. There's Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I know you'd love that. Oh one. boy, the the great one. You, you got to figure. I mean, he's. Uh, I mean, how, how many like four or five point games did he have in his career? I mean, oh. I wouldn't even want to guess. Oh, It'd be oh. quite a few. <laughs> oh, jeez. And I mean, and I mean, as we always talk, we talked about the past too. How many times would he have passed off when he when he could have shot, and how many more goals he could have scored if he had actually not passed? It's just sick yeah. to see, like. Anyway, um, well, Squid, I think we're coming to that approach in that time again when they've heard enough of us. I think we want to swing this one over and hear what uh, Brian has to say. We've got lots to talk about. Squid, our guest today was taken 20th overall in the 1976 draft by the St. Louis Blues. Could be the best described as the ultimate power forward. Played 12 years for the Blues. Was made captain. Sweaters retired. Coached over 1,000 games in the NHL. 
and was the first of six brothers to play in the league. Please welcome Brian Sutter to the Squid and Ultimate League Fan Podcast. Brian, how's things on the farm? Oh, it's awesome, guys. It's good to come in the house and, and be with you guys. This is pretty special. I'm quite honored. Wow, we're honored to have you. Squid, what do you say? Well, I, I think the reason that we, we got – I wanted to get you on here because everybody always asks me on, on our podcast and everything or anything I do, who was the toughest guy you ever played against? And I would say, well, Brian Sutter. I said, there's no, there's no question. I said, it wasn't that we fought. I mean, we hardly ever had a fight. I don't even think we did. But it was just the way that we played against one another and hack and whack and chop and uh, you name it. Uh, you know, but I loved it. I, I loved playing that way. And I, and I know you did. And then, of course, we became buddies when we tried out for the Canada Cup in 84. And, and I said, well, we've got to get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I want to start this off with one for you guys. We are a couple of days before the trade deadline. And what I'm going to look at, it's a very anxious time for fans, for the media, for the owners. But everybody always forgets about the players. And there's just a stressful for the players. Everyone says the right things. It's out of their control. They're going to do their best to keep their eye on the job and all that kind of stuff. But you both have been through it as players and coaches. So two parts, Tim. We'll start with you, Brian, in this one. What are the players really feeling through these next couple of days? And then as a coach, what did you do to kind of get them through it to keep everybody focused at the job at hand? Well, I think it's changed a little bit now, you guys, uh, compared to back when Rick and I played and even when I coached, and that wasn't, seems like not too long ago. It seems like it was yesterday. But, uh, you know, you, you always cared for the players and, and uh, as a coach. And uh, I, I was lucky as a coach because I, I never, ever forgot about how it, how I was as a player. And and I never ever said anything ever to a player that I wouldn't want first said said to myself, and and you really cared for him dearly, and you just didn't care for the players, and and I I I, I think may I, I may have been a little bit different. Everybody thought I was a hard ass, but I really cared for their families, and I cared for them as individuals, and and uh, anyhow, and you just wanted them to be themselves as good as they can be, and and be proud of themselves, and. And when it came to this time of the year, when there's people being, and it wasn't just, you know, back when we played Rick, if you remember, it wasn't just trades. It was uh, guys getting sent to the minors. Like there was, there was rosters being set and, and things like that. And it's still really the same way like that too. They say the game's changed, but it's, you know, back then it was like a 22 man roster. Now it's a 23 or 25 man roster. And you're on a, you know, you you're, it's but you really cared but it was I don't know that's it's 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 not an easy question to answer but you, but you had to care for the players and you cared for their families and you just told the players you got to be yourselves as good as you can be and whatever happens happens like my goodness like hey Rick was traded from Van I remember when he was a kid in in Vancouver and and he was traded to Toronto and and uh, I thought oh shoot he had like Vancouver is in our conference in St. Louis and then Toronto we were in the, we were in the old, we played against each other lots there. And then, oh shit, I got to play against them lots now. And, and, but you look forward to that too, but uh, guys get traded. That's part of the game. Like players get, they get paid and that's part of the game now. 
and but to me it's not just getting traded it's it's you know the waivers and and everything else now that comes into play and it's it's a little bit different now but, but the guys make so much money now like even the your your bottom end of the your rosters they make so much money now so it's it's but you still and then all this this stuff going on right now it's 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 tough on families because and, and everything else. So it, again, like I said, it was different when we played it as is right now, but as right now, and then today uh, it's much different again with all the pandemic going on and all that stuff. So you, you feel, you think about their families and everything else. It's not just about how good of a player you are anymore. Squid. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, and, and you know, you got to remember too, when we played, I mean, you got traded, if they told you at 10 o'clock in the morning, you had to be on a one o'clock flight and be in the next city, like right away. I mean, there was no like, oh, I need uh, four or five days to get my family settled and everything. No, it, I mean, which they do now. But back in the day, I mean, you got traded, you had to hop on a flight. And, you know, you didn't want to see anybody have to go through that. And I know when I was coaching, not at the level you did, Brian, but it was the same thing. I mean, it was like every day I picked three people that I was going to have a conversation with. And it wasn't necessarily about hockey. It was like, how's your family? How's the apartment? How are you doing? You're doing okay. Everything, you know, uh, the same as what we told you it would be here and everything else. So I, I think you're right. I think it's kind of like if you're a coach, you really, really care about the players and their families and what they're going through during this time. Well, the families have to be factored in, too, because you're dealing with schools and kids and uh, friends yeah. and houses and maybe outside interests and all these other things get to factor in at the whole equation. So it's, it's a very emotional and it's a very trying time for everybody. So it's no coincidence that usually the day of the trade that night or the next day, teams play their best games of the year sometimes because all of a sudden that pressure's off and just the air in the room is just so full of energy. Teams are just probably you probably can't keep their feet still on the bench. So. Now, Brian, what I'd like to do is like to go back to where it all started. Out of Viking, Alberta, you and your brother Gary were kind of the leaders of the group, and you were playing on the way up, and you headed off to Red Deer, and your brother turned around and went home, and you kept going forward. But just take a suit. I'm assuming as a teenage boy at that time, you either discovered beer, girls, or a job, or something along those lines, and went the other route, and you kept playing hockey. Yeah, well, I don't know. I get When I look back at it, I, I, lear I learned something. You didn't realize it over the years that we were raised a little bit differently than, than some people were raised. And, and yet we thought we were in heaven. And uh, I actually, my older brother and I went to play, we played junior B when I was 13 and he was 14 and, and played for a couple of years. And then left when we were 15 to Red Deer to, to go play junior hockey. And, and, uh, it, it was it was a special time in your life and you know it's it's uh, I, you really enjoyed it and you really appreciate you look back at it now and and I, I was honored to, to be with all the players I was with and, and the coaches I was with and their role models and where you wanted to go in life and and yet you never ever thought any of that was anything special. And he went from Red Deer to Leftbridge. And, and once again, you're hooked up with some really special people, Earl Ingerfield and Denny Calgard and the people that ran the team in Leftbridge and in the Western Hockey League. And, and you became close friends with them. And, and, uh, and it was the same thing when you went to the NHL. You had the Barkley Plaguers and Emil Francis's and, 
and uh, the coaches I had, I, I was lucky. I was with a lot of really, really good people. And I always say, no matter where you go and what you do, you meet good people. And, and I was lucky. I've been with those role models your whole life. And I look back, I'm 64 years old. And, and uh, I've been with a lot of really, really good people. And, and uh, you, you, can't, they, you can't take memories away from you. And it's, it's like Bobby Player passed away. And he was a dear, dear friend of mine and Judy's and our kids. And we went to St. Louis when we were 19. And, and, uh, and, and his older brother, Barkley, was even, he was as close as Bobby was. Barkley was even closer in a lot of ways. He was a big brother and a dad and not just a coach. And, and uh, so, hey, we're lucky to, hockey's a great game, and, but hockey is the teams that are successful and there's some teams that never have a chance to win in the NHL. But you, you guys are like the Red Deer though. Uh, talked about but now Gary went home so that must have been very difficult for you now I, I understand he won a lot of part of a lottery or something one part of a boom so he won a lot of money I think at one time so I think it worked out for him in the end but that must have been a tough thing for you to go on your own after growing up basically playing with him and then starting off in Red Deer now all you the other remarkable feat is all you guys went through Red Deer and I guess I mean I guess you guys for us older guys maybe the younger people you lean back to the old Victor Kian uh, commercial. Remember the guy who loved the company so much he bought it in Remington yeah. Shavers. Well, it was like yeah. you guys. You guys end up all going through Red Deer. You liked it so much. And your brothers bought the team and he runs it now. So, but how did that whole experience go for you then, being on your own and sort of getting started in hockey? Well, it's, it's, it was certainly different. It's, it's like my dad took me there and it's, it's amazing we're talking about it because it's like it was five minutes ago when I was 15 that fall and, and dad dropped me off in front of the rink with an old brown suitcase, my hockey bag. And, and we just, we had just got power a couple of years before uh, where we were living in Viking. And, and uh, so you got to add a telephone and he said, don't call and, and don't bother us because we're taking the crop off. And, and you better make the team because if you get cut, nobody's coming to get you. And uh, any, anyhow, so it was, uh, it was really different. No, Gary didn't come with us to the, the tryout and, and uh, in junior. And, and uh, but it, it was different. But it, once again, when you went there, the, you know, I, I guess where I came from, the, the morals and values and important things in, in life that you were taught, it helped you when you got there. And, and I look back and I, I was young and, and, but I, once again, I was around some great, great people and you're only good as the people you're around. And, and uh, there were some great role models and I had some great teammates and all those people were good friends. And, and, uh, it, but yeah, it was a little scary. I was cut a couple of days later and, and uh, after I, I went there and, and, uh, it was that that was I didn't know what to do because I remember what dad said I wasn't supposed to call him <laughs> and uh, anyhow so I took my suitcase and my hockey bag and I'll never forget it because I spent the night in a phone booth behind the old rink in Red Deer and kept the, the door closed so the light wouldn't come on and and because uh, you didn't know where to go or what to do and and uh, I'll never forget I was sitting on the rink the steps of the old rink in Red Deer the next morning when the caretaker came in and Mrs. Nagam who ran the concession booth came in and, and then uh, the coaches and the president came in and it was probably six or seven in the morning. I was scared and hungry and cold and, and uh, anyhow, and 
and I told them I've I'm not going. What did they say? What are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to go home. I says, well, I didn't have a ride. And uh, anyhow, Mrs. Nagin bought me uh, two. It's the first time I ever had bacon and egg sandwiches, and she bought me two of those. And I had 75 cents in my pocket, and I gave it to her. And she gave it back to me, and I went in and talked to the coach and the president of the team. And he said, "Get your ass. You're on the ice at nine o'clock tomorrow or this morning. Get get your equipment out and." And so I, I was lucky. It was, but that that was basically the scenario. My older brother didn't come with me, and but you know, I look back at it. That was no big thing. It, it taught you something to not to be afraid to to fail and and uh, and not be scared of it, and and look at things in the eye, and and uh, and I'm not somebody that's ever blamed other people and said other people are wrong, and it's it's. I always think I've got something to learn even to this day and, and I'm the dumb one. And, and, you know, you go 20 hours a day and even when you're looking at cows, that's where I just come from. And you're looking at them and you say, Ryan, you dumbass, like you better, you got to learn something from them. And I was that way back then too. And I learned something every moment and, and uh, yeah, it started a, a path that I met a lot of great people in life. Well, what about Lethbridge then? I think, Oh, sorry, Scrid, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think I think the biggest thing, like Brian said, is that, you know, yeah, it's a little bit tough when you're leaving home at a young age. Uh, you know, you're a little bit nervous. You're a little bit scared of what's, you know, what's ahead of you. But where, wherever you, you went, especially in our day, the whole team were, were friends. So they were there for you if, if you needed to talk to anybody. And I mean, you know, like Brian said, I mean, I played uh 870 some games in the nhl and and then in the, the uh, junior hockey two years and one year in the wha and i tell you i i got guys that i talked to right up until today that were very very good friends of mine uh playing the game of hockey hockey was a great game to meet wonderful people and and i met a lot of them in my career as well well it's just funny funny you said that rick because Hockey is, and, you know, I was talking to a couple of young men the other day that run junior teams and they're having problems with this, like the pandemic and them having to, you know, realize they're, you know, they're isolating and living by themselves and they can't go any place and do anything. And, but like, like, like I told these couple of young guys, it's, it's no different now than it was like when I left home. Exactly. It's amazing what you just said, Rick, that's a hundred percent correct, but it's, you know, but you walk in a dressing room, you realize, well, everybody's left home. There's, there's maybe the odd guy from the hometown that you're playing in, but you know, and, and you stick together and you grow from it and, and you lean on each other and you care for each other. And it's like you said, you talk to guys to this day that you've played with. And I always say the guys that, I learned this from, I was the first player ever to go from being a player to a coach the next year. And I was only 30 years old. And I learned immediately that the guys I hated to play against the most and I wanted to kill and they wanted to kill me. I wanted them on my team. And we, 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 we became great friends. And it, it was amazing. And I, it, it was so special. And, you know, you remember like, Rick, you played with Harold Snaps and stuff. And I'll never forget, you trade for Harold Snaps and Garth Butcher and 
these guys are tough as nails guys you you know you trust them with your life and looking after your kids and your grandkids and and now they're on your team and you're coaching them and and uh that's so it's it's hockey i always say and I, I told this young gentleman this the other day, I says, hockey is a reflection of your soul. And what you do yeah. off the ice is a reflection of what you do on the ice. And nothing's ever going to be the way you want it to be. And nobody's going to let you do what you want to do. So you got to earn it all the time. And it's not about liking and it's like the pandemic and all this BS going on right now. It's not about life isn't about liking and disliking something. It's, you accepting it and you doing something about it and not blaming other people. Yeah. And I got to make a difference. I got to look in the mirror and it's nobody else's fault. It's the dumbass. If the guy you're looking at in the mirror, the guy that's looking back at you has got to learn something from this. And, and if that's the way I was when I was 15 and I'll never forget one of the first times I faced off against you, Rick. And, and uh, I'll never forget the opening face off at Maple Leaf Gardens one night, national TV and uh, pucks dropped. And I'm thinking I'm lining up against Rick Vive. He's one hell of a hockey player. And, and uh, my job was to play against the other team's best players. And I knew if I didn't score, we probably wouldn't win, but I knew I had to try to shut down the other team's best players. And <laughs> I'll never forget it because the puck was dropped. And I don't know what the hell happened. You and I went to grab the puck and you lifted my stick and your stick come up and, hit me across my eyebrow and cut me for about 30 stitches. And I was, I wasn't going to let Rick live know I was hurt or anybody in your team. And you had some great young players. I really admired your team. And, and uh, anyhow, I'll never forget going into the medical room right beside your dressing room in the Maple Leaf Gardens. And, and uh, I had 38 stitches put above my eyebrow. And I told the doctors, I said, I want to be back out by the time I met next shift comes. And they said I was going to miss the rest of the game. I said, guys, I'm going to be out the next shift <laughs> and they, because I didn't want to, I, hey, I wanted to prove to you that, you know, Hey, I, and I, I wanted to prove to you that I wasn't hurt and that was part of the game. That's the way it was. You got hurt a little bit and what are you going to do about it? You're going to go out and go and play. And uh, so it's, it's the game really hasn't changed. Everybody said it hasn't that, it's changed to the people that want it to change and that don't want to win enough and trying to read it out of a book. It's great. Yeah, I would, uh, I don't remember cutting you for 38 stitches. I probably, I might have though. I mean, there's a good chance. It, it, was, it was an accident. <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure, you know what? I mean, over the, over the course of the, I think eight or nine years we played against one another in the same division. It was like, it was like that every night almost. It was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I loved it myself personally. That's the way I loved to play. And, and that's why I knew that's the way you played. And I thought, you know what? I'm going up one of the, against one of the guys that plays the hardest in the league, but is also one of the best defensive players in the league. And if I can score a goal or two, then, you know, I'm doing my job. I'm getting a, a leg up on him. And it didn't happen that often, but there was a few times. <laughs> Yeah, there's oh, special. Like you go back and you look at all the teams you had in, in Toronto and and all the adversity you had to face, and, and uh, it's 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 a special time in our life, and you can't take that away. Well, Brian, I just uh, want to go back thing to about Toronto. Oh, sorry, just no, go ahead. Toronto, go ahead. you were talking about. We had great teams. We had great players. We just didn't have the people up above that I think cared enough from the top, Harold, 
and management and coaching that they just wouldn't spend the money to get the proper people that we needed to get all those young kids, you know, over the hump and, and make them become real good NHLers. And I think that was the biggest problem. But as a team, we stuck together and we didn't kind of let that bother us. We just said, hey, we, we can't straighten it out. We can't change it. Let's just go and, and go out there ourselves and do what we can do best and see if we can win some hockey games. And, uh, you know, I think you're right. I mean, you just, you can't look around and, and point fingers. You just got to look in the mirror and say, okay, what can I do to be better so that our team is better? Now, Brian, going back to your last year junior before that your draft year is coming up and that, and that time it was 20 years. It wasn't like a, it was a couple of years before we'd go back to the 18 year draft. Um, was anybody talking to you leading up to the draft? Did you have any clues from anybody that you're going to get picked or who may be interested or where you may go? I'll be honest. I never thought I was even going to be drafted. And I think I scored 40 some goals my last year junior and had 30 fights or some darn thing. And, and uh, anyhow, but it was, it was neat. The team we played on, I look back and there's guys like Darcy Aguirre became a general manager and, you know, Brian Trache and, you know, Lauren Mulliken, who went on to be a real good tutor and coach and junior. And there was, there was a number of guys in our team that, that went on and played in the NHL, Willie Desjardins and, and uh, coached in junior and everything. But it was the last year. I never, ever thought I was going to be drafted. And I was working on a paving crew in Red Deer that it was June of, of 1976. And Judy and I were also getting married in a couple of weeks. And, and uh, anyhow, where I was working on a paving crew and everything shut down and, and these old guys are dumping and I'm shoveling asphalt behind a, asphalt truck and everything all stopped and these guys are being drafted and they're playing the draft out and and there was this gentleman that was drafted eighth or ninth overall and he was a big bugger a left winger like myself and anyhow and when he went eighth overall and I'd played junior against him for two years that's the first time I thought I was going to be drafted and he went eighth overall and and uh and we continued shoveling asphalt for about another hour and a half and then they everything stopped the horn started honking and everything else and I had no idea what they're talking about and <laughs> and uh the dumb Irish farmer you're talking to is went to the St. Louis Blues so anyhow it was it was it was really neat it was that was like it was yesterday too so it was that you know and and then you learned immediately St. Louis was a t town and a team that was in a lot of trouble financially and you know, in the 12 years I played, we went through numerous owners and we were mm -hmm. getting moved over and over again. And there was lots of years I was never paid what, what I was owed. And uh, anyhow, but because I didn't have an agent and, and everything else. And, and uh, it, it, was a, it was a great, great experience. But St. Louis was, a, it was, it was our second home and we spent 16 years there, Judy and I. Well, who made the call to you that they drafted you? And then what was management's expectations of you going into St. Louis for your first camp? And again, you're coming from Western part of Canada in a small town. You're moving to a fairly big city. It must have been a little overwhelming for you, your first camp as well. Well, it, it was. Uh, uh, Emil Francis had just came from the New York Rangers the prior year, and he was the president, coach, and general manager. And, and uh, 
just prior to that year, they, they named Leo Boyvin coach and Barkley Plager, one of the other coaches. And, and uh, Mr. Francis called and, and uh, uh, we had a couple of gentlemen representing us that uh, were agents and represented back then in junior in Western Canada, certain agents represented. And I think that was way, the way it was down East too, Rick, certain agents represented certain teams. And uh, I didn't necessarily agree with the guys that were representing myself. And, and uh, anyhow, they were both turned out to be a, a pair of crooks and went to jail for years and years. And so after I was 19, in the middle of my first contract, I learned immediately that, uh, that I was gonna negotiate my own contract. And, and uh, Mr. Francis and I did that. And, and he was one of the, guys that kind of ran the NHL then and him and I became dear friends and and uh, I learned a lot overnight let's put it that way every year is a learning experience in St. Louis and you never knew if you were going to be there the next year if the team was going to be there not you the team uh, you know it was you always had one of the lowest payrolls in the NHL and you know and everybody else was flying at certain times during the day you flew at six in the morning and and uh, you did things you we, we cut corners with just about everything. And, and then as it, you know, people forget it, but as it turned out, we were over the years, the St. Louis Blues were basically just a farm team for the Calgary Flames. Like Calgary Flames won a Stanley Cup because every player except for Bernie Federico and I, when their contract was up, they weren't going to get paid. And, you know, in Vancouver, when Vancouver Calgary won the Stanley Cup, they had like 11 or 12 regulars and best friends of, of ours on the team in, in Calgary and some of the best players in the NHL, Doug Gilmore, Mark Hunter, Joel Mullen, Rob Ramage, you know, three of the top four defensemen when they won the cup, they were best friends of ours. They were in St. Louis a couple of years before. So you learn to deal with a lot of things, but you learned, you know what you learned from that guys is you weren't in control of things. And uh, it was interesting the 12 years that, that I played in St. Louis, the only teams that won more games than us were the eight teams that won Stanley cups. And uh, we made the playoffs every year. And, and uh, we always, one thing I learned, I was, became a captain when I was 21 years old. And, and, uh, and then I said that as, as, as a coach, I said, we used to say, if, if we're gonna lose, hey, the clock just ran out that night. The sun's gonna come up tomorrow morning and everybody's gonna know that we were buggers to play against. And we tried to be that way. And, you know, basically most of the players on our team were players that nobody else wanted on their other teams and, and uh, besides our draft picks. And, and uh, so that's, we, we dealt with a lot of adversity in, in St. Louis over the years, but St. Louis was an incredible town. And, and we, one thing we did is, as a team, we always stuck together. And, you know, after every game, whether it was in Toronto, everybody's family went together after the game, we had rules. Everybody's family went with the players for a drink and to eat after the game. And, we stuck together to all ends and, and uh, we were really, really close knit team. All the years we were together. But when, when you arrived there, Brian, there was a lot of real veterans on the team like Gary Unger and, you know, coach, you talked about Emil Francis and guys like Al Arbor. I mean, some of the leadership you must've in the, the, the plaguers, you know, of course you mentioned that must've had a real lasting effect on you, not only as a player, but as a, an everyday person. Well, absolutely. And those are guys you looked up to your whole life, like Red Berenson, uh, Claude LaRose, 
you know, I was named captain when I was 21. And back then I was the youngest captain. The next closest was like, like Daryl Sittler and Bobby Clark. They'd been in the league 10 years. And, <laughs> and we had the oldest team in the league and three quarters of our team in the next three or four years all became coaches and general managers of NHL teams. And like the Red Berensons and, and but you're exactly right. Like Al Arbor and Glenn Hall and, and uh, you know, Dickie Moore and all those guys, they, they were dear friends. They're role models for myself for, in, for life. And, and uh, we always had the older guys from the Montreal Canadians. And it was really special because when you went to Montreal, Bernie and I, Bernie Federico and I were 19 and first year in the league and, and we played Montreal and they had the back then in the mid seventies and early seventies, there still is no team in the NHL. It was good as the Montreal Canadians then. And they were that way for like eight, 10 years. And we played them in the playoffs that year in the first round. And I remember they beat us and Bernie and I led our team in scoring and we each had three points and I'll never forget Sam Pollock meeting me after the game and John Belleville and, and uh, Sam Pollock grabbing me by the arm and, he was, he ran the Montreal Canadiens. He held me, really squeezed my arm hard and looked up at me and, and looked in my eye and he said, son, he says, you never forget this. But he looked in my eye and he says, winners don't always play on winning teams. And uh, I never, ever forgot that. And it's the Montreal Canadiens uh, always traded five or six guys at the end of every year to LA and for a first round pick and this and that and a lot of top round pick, but he, he said something. I never, ever forgot that. And so you always, you always, it wasn't just, you did everything you could to win. And, but like I said before, you took the mentality, if you lost, Hey, the clock ran out tonight and the sun's coming up tomorrow morning. The other team knows we we're in town. Yeah, Brian, I just, uh, you know, I, I marvel through the fact that, you know, you and five of your brothers played in the National Hockey League. And I had the pleasure of playing against you. I played with both Brent and Dwayne. Uh, well, Brent, I, that was at the Canada Cup. And I played with uh, Dwayne in Chicago. And so what was it like to have five brothers? <laughs> I mean, when you were, you were playing when they were all still playing, were you not? Or were yep. you finished when the, when the Twins came in? No, no, they were all, it was, it was really special, Rick, because they were all like Ronnie and Richie were drafted. I believe Ronnie was drafted fourth overall and Richie like seventh or eighth and that year. And, and uh, what are we six years apart? And, and, and uh, so it was even less than that because the year that I was drafted 1976 is the last year there was no underage draft in 1972, like Rick, when you were in the WHA, there was an underage draft for a couple of years there, but the Canadian and the U.S. government decided that it was illegal to be drafting guys under 18 years old. 1976, the year I was drafted, there was no underage draft that year. And, and Donnie Murdoch and I were two of the supposedly better players in the Western League. And as you remember, Donnie scored a pile of goals and mm -hmm. it was the Rangers and then Junior. And, and uh, both of us were supposed to be drafted as 18-year-olds, Trotch, was drafted as a 17-year-old, Brian Troche, and they broke all the laws in Canada and the Canadian government said, no, you can't have be drafting 17-year-olds. And Brian and I were the same age and it was still two years later and he was still playing junior. 
And uh, so it was really unusual. We were, my first year in the Western League, we were supposed to be drafted and, and we didn't because uh, they, or excuse me, the second year. And, and uh, so it, 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 it was kind of interesting, but the, twin, the twins and Brent and Dwayne and Daryl, we were all drafted within a few years ago and apart. And, and uh, it, was, it was always really special. And Daryl, as, as everybody knows, he was one of the last guys drafted a couple of years after me and in, in the draft that year. And I was forced and I went 20th overall. I was second in the second round. And, but Brent and, and Dwayne and Richie and Ronnie were all first round picks. And, and uh, so there was, it was, yeah, I was always really proud of them. And it was, it was, I was always really special. It was, it was neat. To, it was no big thing to have a bunch of brothers playing. I tell you what, one thing though, when you played them, everybody used to say, oh, you got to let up and stuff like that. It was, it, <laughs> no. it, it, it was, it was World War III when we played against each other. It was just like everything we did back in the farm. You did not lose to each other and the score had nothing to do with it. When I was, yeah, I was gonna, that was going to be where I was going to go with that next was, was there any times where you guys got into it a little bit and, uh, I would imagine you would because uh, I know all of you and I know how you guys are, are built and your DNA. And that is, I'm not going to lose to my brother. I don't care if it's my brother or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny, Rick, because I, I, I alluded to a little bit before, like in St. Louis, we were always, you know, it, it seemed like we were, we never had enough money to play our top guys and guys like Bernie and I always took less to stay there because you cared for being there. And all, a lot of your good friends and great players end up leaving St. Louis, but we went when Mr. Francis took over, we were, it was a year before I went there in 76 and uh, in 1979, it was 78, 79. I think we only won 18 games and we had the oldest team in the league. And the next year, we became the youngest team in the league and Rammer came back from the WHA. You came back that year. We traded for Rammer. Uh, we played, he played one year in Colorado, but he'd come back the year before we traded for Rammer. Uh, we had a whole bunch of guys that good players, Mike Liu to pile of guys that, Hey, they weren't going to get paid in St. Louis. So they went to the WHA. Well, we got, we got them all back in, in uh, 79, 80. We went from winning 18 games to having one of the best teams in the NHL and the oldest team to the youngest team overnight. And, and the best teams then, if you remember, Rick, was the Islanders. The Islanders were in their heyday and, and Dwayne and Brent wasn't quite there yet, but Dwayne was there and Mr. Arbor was coaching and Bill Torrey, who had drafted me in St. Louis, was the general manager. And, and uh, anyhow, it was... It, it was it was really neat. So us and them were always playing each other. Winnipeg had one of the best teams in the league then, and and uh, yeah, but the Islanders and us and then Edmonton came in and Edmonton were the best and, and Chicago, where we'd always as you know the division like the division we played in it was hard to get out of. But if you got out of it, it was World War Three. Nobody the Islanders didn't want to play and everything. But but Dwayne was. Dwayne was always a guy that was causing grief for the Islanders and him and I always, <laughs> he was, uh, it, it, it wasn't, he always had something to say and something stupid to say and he kept guys in their toes and, but it was always like, you know, you know, it was like the old Chuck Norris division. It was World War Three when we played each other, Rick, and 
us in Chicago or Chicago and St. Louis and every sport, the NBA and the, or not the NBA, the NFL and, and major league baseball, the Cubs and the, and the Cardinals, everybody, there was bitter war when St. Louis and, oh, and yeah. Chicago played against the other. Well, Daryl's in Chicago and I'm in St. Louis. So that just added to everything and, and everything. So it was, yeah, we had a lot of confrontations as, as brothers, but the neat thing is you never talked about it at the end of the year. And, they were your best friends then, and they're they're still your best friends now. And and uh, anyhow, it, it was always special. You always respected everybody you played against. And it was funny. I said something. Excuse me, Rick. Before, but the guys you hated playing against the most, all the years you played, and as they became your best friends and most respected people uh, after the game was over with and, and you never, it's like when I lined up against you, you, you and I would say, probably say things to each other and, and, uh, but you had a tremendous amount of respect for you and, and you never forgot those things. And you always wondered where you were and what you're doing. And somebody always tell you about what my buddy Spadato head was doing and, and, uh, and, you know, and where he was at. And so I followed you every step of the way that you went and, and it was, Hockey's a unique game. It, it, sports, you know, it's a reflection of our soul and it brought people together and or pulled people apart that weren't strong. Now, you guys have both been captains and you got named your captain after your third year. Rick, you were 22. Brian, you were 21. So you're both young for your age to be captains. Uh, Brian, you first. What makes a good captain? And, and you know, and it, speaking to guys and just knowing a little bit myself, good leaders don't always have to wear a letter on their jersey, but what is it that actually made a good captain? Uh, I don't think that's easy to answer in one respect, but it, it's really easy in another too, because I didn't try to be somebody else because you had a C on your friggin' jersey. You just, you were yourself and that's the way you were. And, and uh, I always knew as a player, I wasn't any better than, I was only as good as every other person sitting in that room. And it didn't matter whether the guy was came from another team and couldn't, you know, wasn't a goal scorer. Or no matter what he was, you always knew that you had to be, you were only as good as the guy you were sitting beside in the dressing room. And, you know, being a captain, I never tried to be something I wasn't. And But you cared for your team and you cared for your teammates and and you cared for your teammates' families and, and uh you were always that way. And we in St. Louis, our teams were always really close knit teams. And I, I don't know what it was. And it's, it's like you were saying, I was named captain. I was 21 and we had the oldest team in the league. And, you know, it, it, it really peed me off. And some nights you went into Philadelphia and you went into some buildings and Atlanta had a tough, tough team and, and Philly. And there's a lot of teams, tough, tough teams. And, you know, I had 25 to 30 majors a year for about 10 years in the NHL and none, not, not, never once was fighting over myself. And, and, uh, it was something that somebody did against our team or one of my teammates. And, and I don't know what a captain was. It's not about scoring goals. It's about caring for your teammate and, and, uh, you know, you know, and you're together all the time. And it's, it's, you're only as good as, as like we said before, the people you're sitting by in the room. And, and as a result, you became great friends with players over the years that came from other teams and everybody said they couldn't play and they couldn't do this. And 
you're a bad people or this or that. And, and it was, I learned that as a coach too, you help players become players that they weren't any place else ever. And, and when you left them, they never ever played in the NHL again. And when you coach them, you had one of the better teams in the NHL. And it's, to me, that was nothing special. You're only as good as the people you're around and you look people in the eye and you be honest with them. And, and uh, being, people said you're hard and it's like my brother Daryl and everything else. Well, that's bullshit because hey, you look, good friend doesn't look each other in the eye and tells him what he wants to hear. Otherwise he isn't a good friend. He's a liar. And good friends, that, that's, that's what life's about. And that's how we were together. We were, we did everything together as a team. And, you know, at Christmas time, Judy, there was 15 or 20 guys that for two days at our house at Christmas time and Thanksgiving. And, and, uh, you know, you cared about other players and their families. And as a result, I guess they cared for you and we stuck together and we went the extra mile, the extra inch for each other during the games. And, uh, but I don't know what being a captain, it's, it's just being yourself, I guess. I don't know, Rick, I'm wandering on and on here. I know you were <laughs> captain at a young age too, but I never, I, I'll be honest. I never thought it was anything special. You be yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought it was pretty special being in Toronto, Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, you're, you know, growing up in Canada, and you know, that's one of the teams that I looked up to and everything else. But you know, then when you when you get it and everything else, and and again, I was in your situation. We had an older team when I first got it, and then when we became real young, and then it became kind of the opposite. So it was. I wouldn't say it was babysitting, but, uh, and, and like you, I don't, I don't think you change who you are. I mean, you, you try to set an example on the ice every, each and every practice, each and every game. Uh, you know, I, I would sometimes, if someone was, was struggling and, and it looked like they, their game was falling off, I might say, Hey, why don't we go for lunch? You know, and I just take them by himself and, and sit with them and, you know, just, talk about it and uh, kind of get it, you know, find out what he's going through, if, if anything, and, and try to help him fix it and get over it. Because, you know, those are guys, I mean, every single guy on that roster you needed to be at their best in order to win. And I mean, the only way I knew how to do it was to try and talk to them and, and understand where they're coming from and maybe, you know, come up with some answers that would get them out of that funk and, uh, and help our team. Well, you know, good leadership comes right from the top and it starts everywhere. And, you know, Toronto was lacking in some ways. St. Louis, they must have been doing something a little different because some of the leadership coming in there, as you've mentioned, touched on Brian and the coaching end is just remarkable. If you look at the track record, and people like Emil Francis, the players we've talked about, Jacques Martin, but the guy that I think you played under that took it to the next, you guys, the next level was Jacques Lemire or Jacques Demers. And he, for some reason, I don't know what it is, we hated him in Toronto because you guys always gave our Leafs a hard, hard time playing against you guys. But what was it about him that kind of just got you guys to that next level? Well, Jock was a special guy, and he was he was a guy that came in and and uh, he came from the WHA and and coached us, and and he was just a special guy. He didn't he wasn't hockey isn't about X and O's. It's about People, you, you getting, if you want a player to become better, you got to get inside his head and uh, figure out what he's got to do to be better and not change him. And, uh, but make himself 
become himself as good as he can be. And uh, that, that, was, that was a big key to coaching. It was always for me, but, but uh, I always call him Jack Demers. I said, you, you were born in Quebec, but you were really from Western Canada. The stork dropped you in the wrong, and the wind was blowing in the wrong way. It dropped you in Quebec, and I always call him Jack Demers. And him and I were really close. And uh, he was one of the first things I'll never forget telling him and Bark is I walked in a room, and, and they were, Jock, at the beginning, he had a kind of a pension to go out, and he'd pick on guys, and he'd be hard on them. And, I went into him after about one week of, of the season of the first year and, and I told him how much respect I had for him and which I did and it was incredible and, and I would have did anything for him but I said you don't say anything ever again to anybody in the dressing room that you don't say to me first. You, if, if you're not happy with somebody else you, you turn to me and say Sutter you didn't do this and you didn't do that and uh and then I'm going to help you relay that onto the team. And, and uh, uh, he was, he, he knew how to, he knew what he wanted to say. He just didn't quite know how to get it to the guys. And, and uh, him and I became very, very close. And I'll never forget the, the day that, that he decided. And once again, he left, like we we're talking about all the guys leaving St. Louis and going to Calgary. He went to Detroit and, Hey, St. Louis wasn't going to pay him anymore. And he went to Detroit for about four times, nine times the money he was making in St. Louis. And he called me in the middle of the summer. I'll never forget that. And he says, I'm sorry, you and I are best friends. And we went through a lot together and, and you know, and we did, it was, it was really, really hard. And, and uh, it was really hard for him to go, but you cared for him and you understood it. And, and I had gone through it so many times over the years people so you had he was just he was it wasn't about hockey it was about making you as an individual better getting inside your head and not changing you and and i was that way as a player with all our teammates and and so it, and then when he got that way it was i've had other coaches that walked in the room and they read their pregame speech on a piece of paper and they did their 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 preview on what, how we stopped the other team. They read it all on a piece of paper, which meant they didn't know anything about what the other team was doing. And whereas Jock Demers, is, he wasn't, you know, X and O's were secondary. It was the game and how hard you played it, pairing and everything else. And once you reach people and understand people, you can teach people. And you don't do the second part till you get to the first. And Jock was, he was exceptional at that. And he did that in Montreal too. And Rick, if you remember, he went there. They were a team that there was a lot of different uh, personalities there and everything else. And he went there and brought them together and they won a cup. And uh, I'll never forget when he won the cup, he called and he goes, you're standing Right on the outside. It was, that was really, it was things like that were special. Like you said, when he went to Detroit and Mr. Devilano signed in there and, and uh, he called me that night and, and he was so, I, I said, Jock, I'm proud of you. And uh, I'll never forget, he was waiting for me around the corner one of the first times he walked in the, the old arena in, in the Lewis, Joe Lewis in, in, in Detroit and he was hiding around the corner and hollered at me and, came and gave me a hug and that was special and it's here I'm, I'm lucky in the game of hockey like I said before there's good people and you learn from good people and 
they set standards in your life. Well, a couple of guys I want to talk about that you played with, and I think this is a little reflection, and you're very modest, so I know you're not going to say anything, but one of them is Bernie Federico, who you've touched on, and I, the other guy is Doug Gilmore. So Federico, I think, was one of those guys, of course, we as fans watching all the time know how good he was, but was he one of those guys that you played with him every day, and Rick, you played against him, you guys could appreciate how good he really was, but he didn't get the recognition he probably should have, and Gilmore until he actually went to Calgary and then came to Toronto, may have been the same. And you played with both of them. And again, what was your impression of the when you first met them? I'll go back to Bernie. I played with him every nine years. He was the first round pick in St. Louis in 76. And I was the second round pick. And we played every in the end that had more points in those nine years than Bernie Federico. One was Wayne Gretzky and the other was Mario Lemieux. Mm -hmm. There's only two guys. And uh, we played every shift together. I was extremely fortunate to play with Bernie and he was a great offensive player. And we played against each other for two years in the Western Hockey League. And, and uh, we lived a block apart and our, our family were good friends. And, and uh, Bernie was a great, great player. And, and Dougie came to us. Uh, it would be in probably our, it was back when there was an underage draft and Dougie came to us. No, there was, doesn't matter, but he came to us and and Dougie had scored more points than Wayne Gretzky did his last year of junior. And yet everybody said Dougie couldn't play. And I'll never forget Jock Demers coming to me in training camp. And he said, Suds, we're never going to win until we have two lines that score. And it was always Bernie and myself. And then, on the right side, it was Joey Mullen for a couple of years and Blair Chapman and some real Wayne Babich, some really, really good players. Yeah, All of them had 40, 50 goals. And, and uh, anyhow, uh, but he says, you're going to play with Dougie Gilmore. And I thought I was in, it was no big thing to me. I thought I was in heaven. And it really, quite frankly, really pissed Bernie off. And uh, he had to play with, other left wingers and and but I played every shift with Dougie after that for the next couple of years and from the time Dougie turned pro him and I roomed together every every day we did everything together and and he was like a little brother to me and and did uh, you give him a nickname by the way which was that killer I was a killer did you give him that nickname I can tell you something Dougie's Gil Dougie Gilmore's name I never ever called him killer Nick Dougie's nickname to me was Charlie it was for Charlie Manson. His eyes. But, but everybody, that's how Killer came about. That, that's the biggest fallacy in the history of the NHL. Dougie's nickname was Charlie to me. And when he got mad, he'd come in and try to stick up for me. I'll never forget Rick, we were in, in Toronto. And Dougie was always mad at me because I was always fighting. And Bob McGill, as you remember, was pretty tough. And Bobby and I always end up yeah. fighting. Um, Dougie had always come in and he was, you know, he was, I was 175 pounds and he was 162, but he'd get on the weight scale with me every day and he'd put some bubble gum behind the, the thing that slid across the top so he could weigh 172 and I'd be 172. <laughs> and, uh, but he had used his stick and he'd come in and act tough and you stay away from Brian or do this or that. Or he was, so I nicknamed him Charlie. When he got mad, his eyes turned around. He had the black hair and he, he looked like Charlie Manson in his crazy movies. But 
he was he was never a killer he was charlie but he was a little brother to me and he was, we were roommates and we were extremely extremely close and back when i became coach i'll never forget i flew back from the farm back to st louis and and i was flying back home and was in the airport in minneapolis and and uh, they told me to the owner and the general manager told me to call him back and, and uh, i was so excited because i was going to be able to coach dougie and and uh, anyhow, they, they traded. They basically gave Dougie away to Calgary, which was a total joke because I knew Dougie was one of the best young players in the NHL. And we basically gave him away. And I tore the payphone off the wall in the airport in Minneapolis, and security was mad at me. And, and uh, it really peeved me off that we traded him. And, uh, but once again, we're a farm team for the Calgary Flames. And when somebody's contract was up and they had to pay him, Calgary had the money and St. Louis didn't. So anyhow, that's what happened that day. But Dougie was a great player and, and he went on to become a great player. He was a good player for us in St. Louis, but we played a secondary role. And, and but we were, we were a really good line, him and I and Craig Pezlowski. And, and uh, we thought we could, he was, he was a guy like, uh, I used to tell Holly, Holly said he never used to be able to kill penalties. He said, I can't kill penalties, suds. Says, what do you mean, Holly? I says, you're supposed to be one of the best offensive players in the game. You've got to know how the other team's best offensive players play or think. So you should be able to be able to think to stop them. And Dougie never killed a penalty. He was that way either. Well, him and I killed every penalty. And the one year we were in the, well, a couple of years we were together, we were in the top two or three for penalty killing in the NHL. And he was, he became a really good all-rounded player. And, and as you know, you guys know, he was a darn good player. He went from you know, Calgary and went on to Toronto and Montreal and he was, Dougie was an incredible player and a special, a special, special person. His nickname to me was never killer. It was Charlie. I love that. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I wanna, Brian, I want to go back to uh, Bernie for a second for Nerco. I mean, I, I admired how he played. I thought he was a fantastic player and obviously you guys played very well together as well. I mean, here's a guy that like Mike said, I mean, when Dougie came to Canada, he finally started getting the recognition that he deserved. Bernie never got that. And I look at his numbers and I say to myself, why is he not in the Hall of Fame? Like, do you think there's an argument for Bernie to be in the Hall of Fame when you look at his numbers and how many games he played? He was, a, I think it was over a point a game. Yeah, he was, Bernie, like I said, next to Gretzky and Muriel, he had the most points in the, in the nine years we played together excuse me the most assists and it was that that was really special and and bernie was uh he was an all-around player some people talked about him just being a offensive player but uh hey we played against the other team's best lines and him and i knew how to play against whether it was a tough team or bernie was one of those guys that he was one of the first guys rick that set up a power play you know he's on the hash marks on the left wing side and and uh, on his offside and I was always in front of the net and to the side and he was you know I was I was one of the top guys power play goal I scored 15 to 20 goals for like nine straight years on the power play and hey that wasn't good for me I it was easy for me to go stand in front of the net and I used to tell the defense from the net is four feet high and six feet wide shoot it as hard as you want and aim it at my head and I'll deflect it but Bernie was the reason he'd draw people to him and you know, mine were three foot goals and, and two foot goals. And, 
I, I knew how to, I don't know if the right word is to compliment Bernie, but to give him room. And I just made sure he had the puck as much as he could have. And, and, but uh, Hey, if his left winger is one of the top power play guy scorers for like, like nine straight years, and I scored 15 goals in the power play to 20 goals. And I remember one year I scored 21 and I was embarrassed. And, but, but it was, it was always because of Bernie and, uh, he was, he was a guy that could set you up. And, and uh, like I always told him, like the defenseman knew, get me the puck when we're coming out of our end of the rink. And I always told Bernie, you be beside me because you're going to have it. I don't want it between the blue lines. And then when I get inside the blue line, like I, I always just tell him, I'm going to the net and you can give it to me. But him and I, we knew how to play together. And, and there's, it was, we could play against anybody, whether it was Gretzky and, and and Yari or or anybody and or when we played against you guys and whoever you played with in the middle Rick we had to be better than you and and it was obviously different you know it, it was different back then but it isn't to the winning coaches now you know you know you're it's who you matched up against it on the road was different than at home and and because who had the last change and and things like that so it was but Bernie was a guy that he could play against anybody and he was Bernie was a special, special player. He's a hall of fame player. And uh, like, again, there was only two centermen in all the years that had more two players and they're two of the greatest players ever to play our game besides Connor now. And, and that, uh, that, and Bernie was the only guy that, and, and, you know, it's amazing. It, it was a terrible, terrible thing that happened in the general manager. And, and once again, it had to do with money general manager and, and the new owner took over in St. Louis and Hey, they were going to, then I, it was my first year as coach. And one of the, they did two things to me that, that really, really, really hurt. And one of them, they were trading my best friend and the other where they were trading my little brother, Dougie. And, you know, we, I burned coach Bernie for one year the next year they trade him where does he go and jock called me again he's going to Detroit and, and so anyhow it was it was it really hurt me but I, I'll never forget telling Mr. Cron and Jack Quinter president I says you guys can be trading them but I'm deciding who's coming back for him then and because they had some guys picked out and I told him the I, I flat out told him I'm quitting as a coach and I says I'm deciding who's coming back from Detroit and they had guys picked out. Well, I chose Adam Oates. And Adam, in the next nine years, did the same thing that Bernie did in the prior nine years. There's only two guys had more assists than him in the game. And I said, I want Adam Oates on our team. And I had a young man that I was trying to educate to become a, a player in the NHL. Let me guess, Brett Hall. Yeah, and I felt I, needed, <laughs> I felt I needed a little help with that in a player, and so I asked for Paul McLean, and uh, so we got Mac and and uh, and uh, Otsi for Bernie, and and those two guys were they, as everybody knows, Otsi went on to become one of the great players in the NHL in the next I don't know how many years. He was the same thing as Bernie the past nine years. He was kind of a quiet guy that just ran every power play and was one of the top two or three guys in assists. And every player he played with scored a lot of goals. Now, Brian, just going back to the coaching, 
you're, I mean, obviously standing in front of the net and playing the way you did with the 25 to 30 majors every year, it's going to take its toll on the body after 10 or 11 years. So, but the, the, the Blues upped you. I think they gave you an extension, gave you some term. And then all of a sudden you end up behind the bench. How did that all unfold? Well, what happened was I'd, I'd never really been hurt bad where I missed any more than two or three games in a row over like nine or 10 years. And, you know, you broke ribs and collarbone and shoulders and supposed to get your knee operated on and everything else all the time, but you never missed two or three days and uh, ever. And, and, but my ninth, it was my 10th year. I broke my scalpula and uh, it took half of one year and half of the next year for it to get healthy again. And it was amazing. I came back, I was always in great shape. I came back and, and, uh, I was healthy and ready to go again. And, and they did, they exactly like you said, Mike, they signed me, us to a new three-year contract. And back then, Rick, like I, I, they signed me to two and a quarter, 275 it was a three-year plus an option, two and a quarter, 275 and 295. And it was amazing because uh, Bill, I never had an agent and Bill said, Brian, there's only going to be three guys making more money than you. And, and I'd been out for, part of one year and part of the next and and uh anyhow but we signed this new contract and and uh I played I came back and played the whole next the next year and Jock Martin came in as a coach and and I never played one power play the whole year and I was in the top two or three power play guys in the NHL for 10 straight years I never played one power play that year but I scored 15 even strength goals, which was lots for even strength back then. And uh, it signed me to a new contract. And I was quite excited about the next year. And, and uh, anyhow, they called me in at the end of one year and they said, Brian, you want, we want you to become coach. And it, it kind of blew you away. And uh, Rob Ravens was <laughs> Taking our families, we always did at the end of every year. We went down to the Gulf of Mexico as a day's drive from St. Louis. And, and uh, we stopped at the rink and we were leaving town. And I said, we'll be back in five days. And, and Judy and I talked about it. And I told Rammer about it. And, and uh, anyhow, we came back and I became coach. And, and I was, wasn't 31 years old. And and uh, but back then, that like nobody had ever gone right from playing to coaching. And but one of the things I did tell them was, and like you said, Mike, I just signed a new contract, and they, I thought it was for, I, I never made big money. And the years before that contract, I made 125 across the board for four years, and the average in the league then was 175. And and uh, anyhow, but uh, they'd signed me to this new contract. I said, well, here's the deal, though. And I knew what the coaches were making because Scotty Bowman was a good friend and everything I did in St. Louis was about Scotty Bowman and Hal Arbor, and Doug Harvey and, and Dickie Moore. So you're good friends with all those guys. So you knew they'd always talk to you and paid attention to you. And, and Mr. Pollock in Montreal and Mr. Belvo and anyhow, but so you knew, I knew immediately. And Bill Daly once again told me what all the coaches made. Well, I'm making, now I'm making, 295. Well, Scotty and Mr. Arbor, their Stanley Cup winning coaches, they're making a little over 100. Well, that lasted one year. Brian Sutter was the highest coach in the NHL. And all of a sudden, the next year, Scotty, Scotty and those guys were, there was some 
they, the, uh, Brian Sutter is the biggest reason coaches' salaries in the NHL doubled overnight. And uh, anyhow, and uh, because I, I just said that's just the way it is. I, we, I'll do it, but I get what. And part of the reason for that was there was a lot of years, you guys, that, that we played in St. Louis, that I was owed a lot of money, like half my salary. And uh, I did not want to leave St. Louis. And like there was years, Rick, if you remember that we were moving to Saskatoon and there was so many years. And that's why so many players got traded over the years. who were great young players in St. Louis and because they weren't going to pay people. And we were had like eight or 10 new owners. And we we're always in receivership. And like I was fortunate, like when Mr. Shanahan and some of those people took over and the NHL, Mr. Snyder in LA offered me one year, $1 million to go play there. And he knew I was a free agent if I wanted, because he knew I, and back then there wasn't free agents. If you remember Rick, it was 32 or older. You're a free agent. 32, and I, yeah. I, I was like 33 and I was like 26 or 27. I was owed half my salary because I wasn't paid the year before. Somehow Mr. Snyder knew about it. And, and he, in the league quietly told St. Louis, and uh, it was really interesting because a new owner took over, Mr. Shanahan, who was a special guy. And, and uh, I got paid $300,000. It was owed to us for three years in a row and a year. And uh, uh, anyhow, it was, it was paid to us. And that's how all our farmland was paid for, money that was owed to us. And, we were playing the NHL. I didn't have an agent, but we wanted to stay in St. Louis. We always did. Now, uh, speaking of which, now, Brent, I was going to ask you, uh, is uh, now going from playing with these guys one year, now you're coaching them, you're standing behind the bench. That must have been a big transition for you, especially, I mean, just simple things like you can't go with the boys for a beer anymore and cut the coach up. Yeah. So, uh, how did, how well, did you deal with all of that? Well, that's one of the first things I talked about because we never, ever did that as, as players. So you always just, whether you thought the coach was right or wrong, you did everything. Mm -hmm. I, I, it was my responsibility as captain. That was one thing. And like Rammer and I made sure we always did that. No matter what the coach said, we backed him up. And even though lots of times him and I might've thought it wasn't right, but we backed him right to the wall. And we did that. So it, it was hard at, at, at first, but it, but it wasn't either because we're, once again, St. Louis, it seemed like every two or three years, we're in a major transition phase in St. Louis. And we went once again from one of the oldest teams in the league. I'll never forget telling the owners, we need to major change everything here. And uh, uh, as far as players and everything else and, if you look back at our rosters, when I coached in St. Louis, you know, uh, well, we went to the NHL drafts. Once again, St. Louis didn't spend a lot of money on things. We'd go to the NHL drafts. Every other team, there'd be the whole floor on the, on the ice rinks. They'd have 15 or 20 people, every team at their table. We would have six or seven. You'd have three scouts. Every other team had 10 or 15. And, I was lucky because the people at Teddy Hampson and Patty Janelle and, and Jack Evans and, and uh, we didn't even have an American scout at, in the U.S. scout at one time, but it was amazing. I'd be in Minnesota or I'd be someplace, I'd get off a plane and you'd go with Teddy Hampson who was our head scout and we'd go watch North Dakota or, 
or Wisconsin or University of Minnesota player. If you're in Toronto, you'd get off the plane and you'd go see a junior team in, in the Ontario League play. And every guy we drafted when I was in St. Louis, there were 10th, 11th, 12th round picks, 8th round picks. Dougie Gilmore was a 7th round pick. Every player we drafted played in the NHL. Every player. You know, people wouldn't remember Steve Tuttle and Tom Tilley and all, the, all these guys we drafted. And we never had a first round pick, but all of them played in the NHL. And you put them in roles and positions to succeed. And that was your job as a coach. And and you did that. And and uh, so it, it was a unique situation. It was a real, I'm talking about a lot of different things, but it was a real unique situation for me. And so I, I was different. Like I was a coach that went and watched players and you had a say in, and uh, we had to, you went from the oldest team to the youngest team in the NHL. And, and uh, you know, you got a guy like Brett Hull and you help make him understand what it took. He you know, he wanted respect and trust in life, and but he didn't know how to get it. And, and you helped him understand how to get it. And, and How did you do that? He was one of the examples I was going to use because he seemed to thrive under you. And I know <laughs> he speaks very highly of you. So... How did you handle him? Because obviously coming up like he did with the father he had, who was one of the most famous hockey players ever, you know, father was never around. It looks like he probably didn't have a lot of structure in his life growing up. Now he's in the NHL. He ends up with you guys. You probably were a bit of a father figure to him or somebody he could look to for some leadership or for some direction. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I suppose it would be. Uh, Brett was a guy... I was fortunate. He was traded to us halfway through the year of my last year of play. And people didn't know this, but he was in Calgary and he'd scored 20 goals and they wanted to send him to the minors. And Terry Chris was the coach in the minors and said, no, you're not sending him down to the minors in Moncton because we don't want him here. And, uh, and, you know, he gets traded to us and he wasn't a well-respected player by his teammates. And, but you understood in a heck of a hurry why he was that way. And it's, you're, you're touching on a few of the issues. And, you know, he, he, I said this before, and two most important words in life are trust and respect. And you don't get one of them without the other. And he wanted them, but he didn't know how to get it. And he was an extremely gifted guy and he enjoyed life away from the rink and he wanted respect and he wanted to be trusted and, he just didn't know how to get it. And I saw that as a player and you cared for him as a player and him, I became friends as players our last year. And, but hey, I didn't let him off the hook for anything. And it was nothing that like, you know, him and him and Otsi were the same. Like I laugh because they'll say you're hard ass, but you never went to the press and condemned him. You never, everything you said to him, they were guys that waited for you when everybody else left the rink that night. and to talk about things and they were the first guys there in the morning and and you always put them in positions to succeed and they, they wanted they wanted respect but they didn't know how to get it they wanted to be liked by and trusted but they didn't know how to get it and i don't know i just you put them in position to succeed and you didn't let them off the hook holly scored 100 goals for me three years in a row in st louis between regular season, exhibition, and playoffs. And he went to the two best teams in the NHL when I left St. Louis. And the two best coaches played, coached him. 
Mr. Hitchcock and Scotty. And I don't think he scored 40 goals again. And they constantly called me and asked, well, what are we going to do with this guy? He's overweight. And he, he smells like this, this Russian white whiskey and, and he doesn't want to stretch. He's the last guy on the ice. And well, he, I just made him understand some things and you cared for him. And I still do. I well, still Brian, I got a story I heard about him the other day. But I was, uh, apparently, him and Keenan were always having battles, which is yeah. not surprising. There's a name, Rick Squid, you and I, that name is awesome. an awful lot. That name comes yeah. up a lot. So anyway, him and Keenan were not getting about, and I guess he wouldn't let him kill penalty, so he was upset about this. So he said, but he would make him serve bench penalties or if there's an extra guy in the box and all that. And finally, Hall just said, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that. Well, Keenan being Keenan, next time they came up, sends him to the box. So he steps out of the box, and sure enough, the puck somehow bounces out over the blue and over the fence mistake. He's got a breakaway. But he takes the puck and shoots it in the corner, then skates over to the bench and said, I told you, I'm not fucking killing families anymore. <laughs> All you do things like that. Now, would that, be, that was that normal, Brett? Yeah, it, it was. And he had, Brett was a special person. He just had an upbringing in life and and uh, him and his dad never talked to each other for years. It took me a, a few years to get him to figure that out. And, and, but I really cared for him. And, you know, one year he had 50 goals in 50 games. I sat him out one night on national TV in Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, he was like minus four the night before in Buffalo and minus three the two nights before in St. Louis. And, you know, he was taking two and a half minute shifts and yet he wanted his teammates to respect him and trust him. And he was scoring goals like crazy, but he was a minus player and everything else. And I said, Brett, the players are going to kill you. This isn't me. Your teammates are going to kill you. You know, you want, he, he wanted to be loved by his teammates. He just didn't know how to get it. And, the guy you're talking to him just it was a real hard thing to do that night and and uh i'll never forget because bobby came down to the dressing room in maple leaf gardens and he was a little bit inebriated and and uh, uh he wasn't very happy with his son and i more or less told him where to go which was really hard because he was a hero of mine and and he hadn't talked to brett in a number of years and and, but it took me a few years to get them to understand each other and to care for each other. He was lucky. He had a, uh, a really good mom and a really good stepfather. And, and uh, like my wife, Judy, has said a number of times, it, we should, should have built a, another uh, bedroom upstairs in our house and Brett should be living with us. And, and, him, and I were, him and I were really close and Otsi and lots of guys, Jeff Brown and on and on and on, Curtis Joseph and so many guys in life that they, they, those guys are just examples where they wanted to be good and they wanted to be respected and trusted. And, but they'd gone through things. There you go. Like I said at the beginning, what you do off the ice is a reflection, what you do on the ice. And this game is a reflection of our soul. And you taught those guys that it was a way to teach how they could be looked at by, from other people. And like Holly's best friends and are to this day are guys like Kelly Chase and, Bobby Basson and Richie Sutter and David Lowry and guys like that. He loved those guys. Just loved them. And, but it, it didn't bother when we started you guys for him to take a two and a half or three minute shift. I'll never forget one night in St. Louis, I walked down. It was really hard to do. Stayed in the ice almost three minutes. And Rick, as you know, you could, you 
you work hard, you're on the ice for a minute, you're dead tired. Well, I'll never forget going down and putting my foot on the door. <laughs> He's coming off the ice after being on the ice over three minutes. And I wouldn't let him on, uh, on the bench. Because you stay out for another shift when the players were just wild. And I knew they wanted to kill him, but I wanted the players to not just want to kill him. They, I wanted them to be mad at me a little bit and deflect some of the negative attention to me. And, and so I'll never forget that. But Holly learned from a little thing like that. And, and it, was, it, was, it was really special. He was, it was amazing because uh, Rick and I were talking the other day, Kevin, about, about you know, a guy just passed him for the most power play goal or tied him. Ovi just tied him for the most power play goals. And when he was, when uh, Holly was playing, I'd always use comparisons and I'd, I'd get him to watch Rick. We'd, we'd watch a little bit of film on him and stuff like that. And you're right where, like, how the hell does he score? Once in a while, he stands in front of the net and he could shoot like crazy. And Holly wouldn't score for three or four games and be missing the net. And I'd say, just plant your fat ass in front of the net. And then he'd deflect a puck in the net and he goes, well, that's easy. And so you just got into his head a lot of times and, and uh, you helped him become something that he always wanted to become. And then when you left him, he fell back to where he came from before him and I got together. It's great. It's funny. You mentioned uh, coaching, Brian. And I know, I mean, you went obviously from being a player right into coaching in the NHL where I went to the ECHL and then the American league, but I mean, isn't it almost like being a parent all over again? It's kind of like, except you got 20, 23 kids now. You don't you don't have just two or three. You have twenty three, and it's a uh, you know it's one of those things that like I read books on psychology, sports psychology, and like I said, it was all about communication and talking to them, and like you said, having trust. You got to have trust, and if, you know what you say. Uh, you don't follow through on, then, you know, th there can't be any trust. So, uh, yeah. but it, it was kind of hard at first for me to get used to it, but reading those books really helped. Yeah. And you always, you know, it's funny you said that Rick, because even when I was young, I, I, I really, I, I didn't understand some things. And when I was, I can remember in my teens, I'd read book on books on psychology and things like that. And it taught me why things were the way they were in life and why people thought the way they did and it didn't make people right or wrong and and uh anyhow but yeah as a coach you're you're you are like a parent and and i always said coaching in nhl is no different than coaching kids in in peewee you know you got to get to them and you got to make them understand yeah. what work is and you got to make them care for the guy they're sitting beside and you got to make them understand that it's not only times your name's announced over the intercom that makes you a good friend and a good teammate and and uh uh anyhow and that you got to win off the ice and you got to care for their families and, and everybody else and and i always said as a coach rick and you'd, you'd know this is you never wanted to change players and the good lord I always said oh. the good lord always dropped us has dropped everybody on this earth for a reason and if you look long enough and hard enough, you and me and you, Kevin, and, and everybody we hang around, there's something. We're not good at things, at some things. But a, a good Lord gave us everybody something special. And that's, yeah. 
you had to, I always felt you had to, I was, I was like that when I look back at my brothers and, and, you know, this is what you're good at and, and, and don't be afraid to make mistakes and, and, you know, don't be afraid to admit you're wrong. Say, Hey, I'm wrong. I got to be better. And that's yeah. when, when, when we lost, everybody always said, you're a hard ass. Hey, I always took the mentality and I laughed because they used to talk when I went to Calgary. And once again, we had a $13 million payroll and they convinced me for three years to go there and coach and I wouldn't go, wouldn't go. Next closest team was 29 million. The average salary in the NHL or the contracts in the NHL on a team were 42 million. We were never over 13 million. And we took the mentality in Calgary and we were called the young guns. I told the guys, and everybody we got there, nobody else wanted. We had five defensemen under 21 years old. Martin St. Louis couldn't play. Val Burry couldn't play. James Weimer was a nobody. Jeff Shantz, I did. We became, we had the youngest team in the NHL. We were in the top two or three for the three years I coached there in power play and penalty count. We never made the playoffs, but we fought for it every year. But you know, I'll never forget one night in Philadelphia. It was amazing because I remember Jeremy was there and Ronick and Eric Lindros. They had a heck of a team. And uh, they ended up beating us 4-3. And we'd use seven goalies that year. And geez, we dressed John Jebastian Jaguar that night. And he'd, you know, he couldn't play in the American League. And, and he tried to quit and come off the ice. And I'll never forget getting the guys Rick up after the game. I said, guys, get up. And we'd play, we played Pittsburgh the night before and we brought a goalie up. There was a Russian and Craig Patrick is a dear, dear friend of mine. He was the president general manager of Pittsburgh. <laughs> Craig had the loan, the goalie, the, the equipment from his team, from the Penguins. And Peng, Penguins beat us 4-3 that night. Philly beat us 5-4 the night before. And we had this young team and the guys were just broken hearted and and I'll never forget, I said, guys, everybody get up in the room. And everybody got up. And I remember there's Rich Preston, Al McNeil, and great old Montreal Canadian, Jamie Hayslip, were coaching. And all the players stood around, and we all put our arms around each other. And I, and I said, okay, guys, everybody look at each other. And we're standing in the middle of the room. And I said, guys, we're only as good as each other. And I said, the clock ran out on us tonight. The sun's coming up tomorrow morning. And from here on in, and this was about November of my first year, I says, from here on in, if we lose a game, the other team knows we're in town. We're going to play hard and we're going to be miserable buggers to play against, but we're not going to let each other down. And the clock ran out, but the sun's coming up tomorrow morning and we're going to start all over. And we did that. And all those players... There were nobody when they came to us. Martin St. Louis went on to win a Rocket Richard and a Conn Smythe and a Stanley Cup. He couldn't play, couldn't even be drafted. Well, the dumbass you're looking at believed in him. Jason Weimer is another guy. You know, he played more games in the NHL before he was 21 than anybody except for Bobby Orr. And he was a guy that became a leader, an ultimate captain. You know, Phil Housley was done and he came to us and stayed on and on. And we used eight goalies one year. Like I said, guys, you'd never heard of before. And yet, like I told the guys, we lose a game, guys. The clock ran out. Well, and you know Philly, what? 
Brian, I just want to go back to uh, uh, St. Louis while you're talking about some of these young defensemen, one by the name of Scott Stevens. Now, you changed the way coaches were paid with your salary, which is uh, your first year of coaching. He certainly changed the way defensemen were paid, the way trades were handled. Now, as a coach, you end up losing this great player. You end up with Brennan Shanahan. But also now you're looking at Brennan Shanahan. There's Hall. There's Oates. And uh, speak to those uh, two kids, I think, you know, on the bench. The, the two twins were with you also, I think, for a while. Yeah. Well, so talk about all that, with how you dealt with all those guys. Like, all of a sudden, you had some firepower. Well, you did. You went from one of the oldest teams in the league to one of the youngest. And, and uh, it's funny, one of the second year I was in St. Louis, I'll never forget the owners calling me. And I was, I was on a tractor cutting hay. And they said, Brian, what do you think if we signed Scott Stevens? I says, well, he'd just be our best defenseman. And, and Scotty had some shortcomings too. He was a hard-nosed, get-out-of-my-way type of guy. And he was coming from Washington. And, and uh, anyhow, but it was, it was interesting. And they were trying to establish a new mentality and namesake for the St. Louis Blues. They are going to spend some money. And so they signed him. And, well, it was, it was, we, you know, it, it, it was good. And it was, Scotty was a young guy learning his way in the NHL and, and uh, he became a great player in the NHL, but he was like a lot of our guys, like Jeff Brown. We got Jeff Brown from the Quebec Nordiques. He was the worst minus player in the NHL for three years in a row. And I thought Brownie had the ability to be one of the best offensive defensemen in the NHL. And he became that. And we got him and he, he played with, it's funny, there you go. He played with Scotty. The two of them played together. And Holly, Rowdy drove Holly nuts. And uh, Holly, Holly wanted attention. And, and I knew Brownie. He was somebody that just needed direction and needed to be cared for in a different light. And, and uh, those guys were all the same. I brought up Curtis Joseph before. And, you know, it's, uh, it was all those guys were the same. They needed to be, they, they wanted respect. And, but you had to teach them what work meant. And a lot of people don't know what work means in life. And, and, uh, and it's different to everybody. Well, what about your two brothers on the team? Well, it was interesting because Ron Cron came from the Montreal Canadiens. He was their head scout and helped run Montreal for years and years. And he was always on me. And I didn't have nothing to do with that. And it, it killed me because I loved the young man that he was traded for. It was Rod Brendamore. I love Rod. He was a, a 19-year-old kid that... Uh, you know, he was built like Tarzan. He was so strong, he couldn't even move his neck. He, he was he still is, apparently. Yeah. And was, <laughs> but, but we traded him. And, but Mr. Cron felt we needed leadership. And Ronnie was, was like Ricky, you and I. He was one of the youngest captains in the NHL. And they Clarky named him captain in Philly there when he was real young. And, and so we traded Rod Brenner. And once, and I picked a guy off their team who I knew was become a good player. And he became a star player with us and a solid player with us was Murray Barron on defense with Murray, Murray was about yeah. six foot six and he could skate, geez, he could skate. And, and he wasn't, he played hard and, you know, he wasn't a big point, but anyway, we've got Ronnie and, and big Murray for, for Roddy. And, and they, they, they really, Ronnie, it was typical of, of Ronnie. He was a young captain. He helped two guys become big time NHL players. And they had one of the best secondary lines in the NHL. And 
One was Mr. Shanahan and the other was Nelson Emerson. And Ronnie played center for them and, and Shani. And Shani was a young guy that, hey, players didn't really, really respect him. And he was, he was a young hard-nosed guy that could score, and, but he was learning what, what mm -hmm. playing in the NHL was like and becoming a man in the NHL. And hey, Ronnie was their centerman. Nelly was a center. He was a Hobie Baker finalist. They moved him. We mo I moved him to right wing and put Shani on the left side. That was one hell of a line. And then you had Oxy and Holly and whoever, like I used to tell you guys, the rest of you guys decide, you guys got to tell me how you play that night, who's playing with you. And then we got to okay it with Holly and, and Oates here. But anyhow, but, uh, then you had guys like, hey, there you go. You had, you know, you had Scott Stevens and Jeff Brown. You had Curtis Joseph. And, you know, we went, we stole Vincent Riendo. Out of, he was the top draft pick of Montreal. And he was the best player outside the NHL in goal. And, and, you know, we got Gia Bear and Pat Jablonski. We had four outstanding young goalies. And, and we had all these young guys, Ronnie and Shani and all these guys. They were all kids. And heck, Holly, like I said, Holly, you big, fat-ass old fart. You're 26 years old. And, and, uh, and Oatsy was 26 or 27. And then, but, hey, what did we do? It's like you and I are talking at the beginning. Uh, Rick, you traded for guys that you hated playing against and you knew that made a team. One was Harold Snaps, one was Garth Butcher. Uh, hey, yeah. we, got, uh, we got three guys, you're talking about my brothers, we got three guys that other teams did not want. They were the best scoring checking line in the NHL for two years. And it was Bobby Basson, David Lowry, and Richie Sutter. They each scored 15 goals a year for three years in a row on a third line. And uh, it's weird because I moved them all to different positions. Richie was a right winger. I made him play left wing. David Lowry was a left winger. I made him play right wing. And I moved Bass from left wing to center. And those guys were the most missed. They were the, the three best penalty killing forwards for three years in the NHL as far as goals against. And we had a young, powerful team then. And But once again, we got new ownership. And... Everybody thought we we're going to win the Stanley Cup because we built this great young team. Mm -hmm. And we we're just kids. We we're all kids. I was a kid. And they thought we we're going to win the Stanley Cup. And Chicago had one of the best teams. Ricky, you were there. And you guys had one of the best teams in the NHL. And uh, we couldn't beat you. And I ended up losing my job. And every one of those guys went someplace else. And none of them ever really accomplished, again, what they they did in St. Louis. And like Oatsy always said, I scored lots of points, Suds, but I never had, never did what I, what the fun we had together and, and how together we were in St. Louis again. Squid? No, just, uh, yeah, I mean, the coaching part of it, it's, uh, it's hard because, uh, I mean, I guess it's a little bit different in the NHL, but in the minors, in the ECHL, it's probably pretty close because you're the one that goes out and gets the players. So you bring the players in and it's up to you to figure out, you know, which guys you're going to keep, which guys you're going to let go. Uh, do I want this guy on my team? Do I even think he belongs here? What, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, but the time that you have to spend with those players to try and make them understand what they need to do is unbelievable. I mean, when they're that young, or, uh, you know, they got so much going on, they think in their life and they're doing everything. But you got to sit them down. And, and the hardest thing is to teach them 
what they need to find out to be good players. Yeah, that's right, Rick. And it's hard because it's, you know, like you and I were talking before too, if you want to be honest with people in life, a good friend isn't somebody that doesn't look them in the eye and tell them what he wants to hear all the time. And that's really being a coach or, or, or a parent yeah. or a parent. And it's yeah. hard to say those things sometimes, but it was, it's funny, like Mr. Arbor taught me something when I was really young and he goes, Brian, you just never be afraid. Don't say anything to anybody else that you wouldn't want said to yourself first. And uh, yeah, always be honest and, and, and never, I was somebody that never ever blamed anybody else. It was always my fault when something went cross-threaded. And, and that's the way I looked at it. And that's like, you're talking, Rick, we, you had to, you, and a, you got to look at my brother, Daryl in, in, in Calgary right now, he's coaching Calgary and they're having problems winning. Well, guess what? all of a sudden they're a little bit hard to play against. And some of their players are finding it hard to play in their team, but you know, and they've got some offensive guys. Well, guess what? They never won in the past. You know, they'd score some goals, but their team never won. Like you got to do other things to win. It's just not your name on the score sheet. That, that, and that is, you know, no, right, absolutely. as a coach, we got to, you, you got to teach other people. It was like that way with Tully. I was, what's going on in Calgary is it was just like Brad Hull's name is all over that. And they've got some great young players. They scored goals like crazy in the past, but guess what? They never won in the end. And then everybody questioned them. Well, your, your top people got it. Like I always used to say to guys, every one of you guys, there's 20 is dressing tonight. And I used to tell a backup goalie, you're as responsible about winning tonight as anybody else here. And if we win, we're going to win together. We've all got to help. And if we lose, every one of us are responsible. And you guys can't let each other down. And that's hard to get players to understand, people to understand that. Because one of the most important words in life, besides trust and respect, and as you know this, Ricky, is accountability. And you've got to be accountable. And Lots of people aren't, and society is. A lot of people in society aren't that way in this friggin' pandemic and everything else. People aren't yeah. accountable. And it's funny uh, in coaching, too. I mean, what I think what a lot of people forget is that all these players that come to whatever level they get to, for the most part, have been the best players on their team growing up all the way along. You know, so they've kind of gotten the, the gold glove treatment or whatever you want to call it silver spoon treatment and hockey wise anyway. And then they get to the, uh, the American League and then they get to the NHL. Well, guess what? There's there's 12 guys that are better than me now. <laughs> so yeah. I got to find another, I got to find a, a place where I fit into this lineup and I got to, I maybe have to play a, a new role. I mean, I see that so often that these kids, they're, they're so good all the way up to the best player, but they cannot adapt to playing a different role. Yeah, it just it drives me crazy. Well, it's amazing, Ricky, because it's you, they say the game's changed. Well, that's bullshit. People have changed, and yeah. you don't learn you don't hard learn how to win and be successful out of a book, reading a book. And hey, we were talking about Dougie Gilmore earlier. He broke Wayne Gretzky's record the last year of junior of, of goals. His last year of junior. Well, guess what? When he got to the NHL, he couldn't score. So, you know what I always told him, I says, here we're going to do, but we're going to become the best penalty. He never killed a penalty. We're going to become a good penalty killer. Our job was to play against the other team's best lines. 
and 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 we were the secondary power play team and and uh, bernie was you know and so you dougie was a great example what do you do it's exactly like you say yeah. you're so it's it's endless it's endless of, of where all these first round picks go and you know unless they do some what, what are you going to do if you don't score to be a good teammate and and some right guys away you gotta yeah, and, and some guys don't understand it, but hey, I use the old farmer analogy to you guys. A farmer analogy is shit runs downhill, and there's always a big pile of it, and it starts on <laughs> it starts on top, and there's a big pile of cow manure at the bottom. Okay, but it always starts on top, and yeah. the top people don't understand that in any business yeah. and in sports, most specifically. And I know lots of people that own and run and are in, in the last half century are the most successful people in sports in every, every different sport. And they're good friends. And they talk to you about that to this day. It starts on top and you got to set standards and principles on top. And you're only as good as the people you're around. And it's, it's not about, yeah, absolutely. you know, Tom Brady is a great guy. You look at like that. Well, I knew him and, I knew Mr. Bilicek when he started and, and Bill Walsh and, and Joe Torrey and, and, and you're good friends with those guys. And, and uh, you know, it's amazing. You get calls from those people. What do we do with this guy or that guy? He doesn't want to pay attention. He's a big draft pick and he doesn't want to learn. And, and uh, you know, it's so special when you see a guy like Tom Brady do what he's done over the years and everybody says he's finished and, and uh, it's, it's, but it, but it's what we're, I don't know. It, 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 it is hard. Rick is a coach, but you gotta, it's, it, it's like raising your kids. You gotta tell them some yeah. things that some days that break your heart. Well, here, let me throw this one at you two guys. Here's one for you both guys uh, along those lines. And we use a couple of your words that you've used, Brian, in the, uh, over this uh, conversation. By the way, we're, we're, thank you for taking so much time. We're going to hold you up only for a couple more minutes. But by the way, Gilmore, I believe when he finally got his recognition, you were probably playing with him, was the playoff game when he got the five assists. He, that night on the Hockey Night Canada broadcast, they actually talked about it. And people started to recognize this guy's actually a pretty good little player that's in St. Louis. But now what I wanted to throw at you guys was, as a coach, the frustrations, you must have had some frustrations or a challenge to realize that you could only offer solutions to the situation at hand and trust someone else being your players to do it rather than jumping in the ice and doing it yourself, which you used to do in the old days. How did you get your head around all of that? That must have been a tough thing to sort of process in your mind, mindset. Rick? Yeah. yeah, that that was my first year. That was the toughest thing for me that I like we'd be losing or the referee would make a couple of, you know, iffy calls. I, I couldn't go on the ice and do anything about it. So what the, all I could do was yell and scream, which, I, you know, I thought maybe would help, but it didn't. It didn't help one bit. And uh, then I sat down with Andy Van Helleman and he talked to me and he said, Rick, he said, you got to learn how to you know, talk to the officials. So keep your hands in your pocket and always talk nicely. He said, it doesn't matter what you say, as long as you say it nicely and don't be, you know, moving your hands around and, and, and making the referee look bad. So I tried it one night and I, I Terry Koharski was a referee. As a matter of fact, I was in Charleston and I had my, yeah, 
he made three bad calls in a row against us. And then, so I called him over and I could see him coming in. I knew he didn't want to talk to me. Anyway, I got my hands in my pocket. And, you know, I said, hey, Carrie, I said, uh, you should see that uh, that blonde over there by the penalty box. And he goes to turn around. I said, Terry, whoa, 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 don't turn, don't turn around yet. I said, you know, she'll know you're looking at her. And uh, uh, Anyway, so I said, by, oh, by the way, I said, those are three horseshit calls. And uh, anyway, he, he beelines it for the, for the penalty box, pretending he's talking to the people in there. And he looks over and then he goes to get ready for the face off. He looks at me and goes, hmm. And then, of course, we got three power plays in a row. So <laughs> after that, it was easy. Then I knew, oh, this works. <laughs> Who's the head official, Tim Peel? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Yeah. And Brian, your thoughts? I know you don't want to answer it. Oh, no, no, it's, it's, uh, those are things, uh, you know, as a coach, I, again, I was lucky. I had a guy like Earl Ingerfield that coached me in junior that played like 14 years in the NHL with the Rangers. And, and then when I got to the NHL, all I heard about was Al Arbor and Scotty Bowman and, and, uh, you know, Dickie Moore and Doug Harvey and all those guys became great friends. And you're playing with Red Berenson and Barkley Plager and, and, uh, you know, you became really, I, I was lucky. I had some good role models in life. And, and so when you became a coach, I, I was like Rick lots of times, but once again, I learned as a player, you're only as good as the guys you're sitting beside in the dressing room. And I always used to tell the players that you're only as good as each other. We lose. Hey, I don't care whether you scored three goals. I don't want to hear about how good you played. And uh, hey, that's part of the game. You're supposed to score sometimes, but it's all the other things that lead up to the other guys on the ice and, and uh, uh, everything else. And, and like Rick made an analogy towards the officials, that, that, that's, that's, has a lot to do with it. Things like that. And is yeah. you, you, you make your teeth, you watch some games and, and you know, the referees are peeved off with the team because, you know, they're all yipping at him and being disrespectful to him. And well, you treat him with a little respect, even if he's wrong, he's, you know, it's amazing what he might try to do for you. Just like Rick just said, and it's, uh, that's like kind of dealing with life and, and uh, you gotta, you gotta care about that. And, but you always gotta, it, 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 it was, it was tough what you talked about and what Rick reflected on, but, at the same time, I, I never asked anything of a player I wouldn't try myself. And I would never say anything to a player mm -hmm. that, I, that I wouldn't want said to myself first. And like I told you in Jack, Jack Deemers, when Jack, Jack took over coach, I told him, <laughs> and Bar says, don't you guys ever come in the room and give Jilly Delorme or Ingie Hammerstrom or cut the shit out of those guys or some young guy, Dwight Schofield or Terry Johnson. You come in and give Brian Sutter shit for the things that they did wrong and and say you're not going to play in the next next situation if you do that again and it was amazing how close we became over things like that and uh so anyhow it's I always said coaching in NHL is no different than I touched on this before than coaching a bunch of kids it's it's trying to make them feel better and getting the most out of them and sticking together and them being accountable to each other and if we lose, we lose together. And if we do something good, we do it together. And it's, it's everybody's accountable for, 
the positive things that happen and everybody's accountable for the things that don't go and stand up and look at each other in the mirror. And it's, we were, that's why I look back and the, the things you guys about what we did in the 12 years in St. Louis, you know, it's, uh, and it, it always broke my heart. With everything going on. Yeah. With everything yeah. going on around. Yeah. You know, I remember one year, Rick, you guys beat us in Toronto and we had a good young team and Daryl's team had beat us in Minnesota. We'd always had a young team and you would have lost somebody and good players and Rammer would have got traded and it just killed you. And you're always, you know, who replaced them and you knew you were missing something, but you, you always, you always, I got to do more. I got to, I got to get it done. And you never, it, and, but you, you didn't win and it, it, it killed you because, you know, like we we're saying when the Islanders and, and dog and, and Brent were playing for him and, you know, yet you became great friends. Mr. Arbor was their coach and Bill Torres, their general manager. They're both ex St. Louis blues and we were dear friends and they cared for me as a player. And, and, uh, is amazing because Bobby Bourne and Clark Gillies and a lot of us became great friends after we ended up playing and God, I hated those guys. And as you wondering how they, <laughs> they, but you respected them so much. And, uh, but when the game was over with, and it was, it was good because after you're done playing, you became, as we talked about the guys that you wasn't disrespect. You found the hardest to play against the guys mm -hmm. they, they were the people you really cared for and respected most in life and you wondered what they're doing all the time like this gentleman from the maritimes i'm talking to right now and you wonder what they're doing and then you call me and it's like i talked to you two days ago and i was lining up against you five five or last week and it's it's yeah. i always say people you care about in life the most you might not talk to them for years and years and then you talk to them and it's like you were together two minutes ago and well, that's, uh, exactly, yeah. Well, that's fantastic, guys. I just, I, you know, Brian, we could talk to you all night about this. It's just it's like hockey players. It is the mantra of hockey players. They'd leave it all on the ice and have a beer after and talk about it. That's That'll never, never, ever change, no matter you're playing uh, House League, uh, NHL, or you're playing Beer League, which I play now at the, with all the old 60-year-olds. So yeah. that has never changed. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time today. Uh, Rick, anything else before we let Brian get back to his uh, chores? No, I, I think that's great. I think I left out one thing. I forgot that Daryl was my assistant coach in Chicago when I first got traded there. Uh, but again, thanks, Brian. And uh, like I said, I, I don't know how many th things I've been on and people have asked me, like, who's the hardest guy to play against? And I always said, well, the time that I played, it was it was Brian Sutter because I had to play against him every, every damn time we played St. Louis. And I said, I knew that by the time that game was going to be over, I was going to be exhausted, <laughs> regardless of if we, whether we won, lost, or I scored or I didn't score. I was going to be tired because it was a war. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was always factor, Rick. It's, it's it's really neat when you called and you asked me, and we got to stay in touch, my friend. And uh, it's an honor to be with you guys, and I, I feel privileged. It's uh, I'm a lucky person. You didn't make my day. You made a lot of. A lot of time in my life. I won't forget these few moments we've had together. Oh, I've enjoyed every minute of it, Brian. It's been fantastic. And thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, I'm honored, guys. You guys look after yourself. Stay in touch. Stay safe. You too, thanks, Brian. Brian. Okay, Bye, take care. Brian. Well, Squid, there's a guy.
I don't know. I, I never played in a show, but if there's a guy you're playing for, you go through a wall for him. All he'd have to do is look at you and just watch the way he carried himself as a player, as a leader, and just as a person. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. I mean, uh, you look at, you know, probably the way he grew up working on the, you know, the farm and working the land and, and you know, having to do that growing up and then going on to play junior. I, I'm not sure there's a better guy out there that you'd want to learn from. And uh, the way he played was exceptional. I mean, like he said, I, I think the one thing was we lose, but we they're going to know that we were here. Well, that's exactly <laughs> the way Brian was. We, you know, like I said, it didn't matter how the game went. At the end of the night, you damn well knew he was there because he had to play against them all. All right, he and he sure was tough to play against. But what I like the fact is that he took full ownership of everything. As captain, he took mm -hmm. it upon himself. And the way he talked to Demers when he went in and said, look, you don't address the players, you come through me. Yell at me, mm -hmm. I'll get the message to the guys. Like, as a true leader. Yeah. So, uh, you just gotta, you just gotta tip your hat to that. That's just something you just don't teach. You got that in here, either have it or you don't. And he definitely had it. And that's the other thing too, that you gotta, I think a lot of people would probably forget is he's the oldest of six brothers that played in the NHL at the same time. You don't think there's a lot of pressure on him to, you know, to help the, the ones below him and so on and so forth. But yet he still kept plowing on and having a, a great career. Well, I want to get into that with, uh, you know, him, was he sending the message back down the chain as all the players are, because they all went the same route. They all played a radio. I went to Lethbridge and all came through. We didn't get into the coaching yeah. part. I mean, three of them, four of them coaching in Nash Hockey League, three in the same team. Uh, yeah, there's just so much more you could go on about. Then we didn't even get into the grandkids that are all playing now. So they're all still playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So it just, it just never stops. But anyway, it had a great segment with uh, a great guy. Uh, hopefully we'll have to get him back on again and then do this again. But uh, Ryan Sutter. So, guys, uh, it was a long one today, but I think it's worth it. You're going to enjoy it. We've got uh, – you can reach us on iTunes, Podbean. Go to the Ultimate Leafs Fan website. All our all 41 of our segments are up there. Rick Vive's got his website. The Promises Me, they're all going to be on his website as well. Go to YouTube so you can find us all over the place. Send us any questions you may have or any thoughts you might have. And again, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week.